Hello and welcome to the Mind Springs podcast with me, Alastair Appleton. I hope you enjoy what you hear, and if you'd like to find out more about us, then visit mind-springs.org. Um, when I set the uh, when I set the topic for this, <laughs> when I was I was like, oh, that sounds good, and then I read back and I was thinking, oh, good lord, I've bitten off a lot uh, uh, with the subject: is meditation enough? Because I immediately started to think, well, what is enough? Enough for what? Um, I suppose uh, I should say a little bit about my uh, myself, why, I, why I'm interested in this question. As Anthony kindly pointed out, I, I, I work on television. It's one of my main sources of income. But I've also, uh, for the last eight years, have been practicing as a psychotherapist in Brighton. And for the last 13 years, I've been teaching um, meditation. Um, up in, Sammy, uh, up in um, Holy Island, which is the island that Sammy Ling owns up in Scotland, and in various centres around, around the country. And so meditation has been a sort of central plank of my life, my therapy work as well, sort of for myself, for since 2000 when I start, first started practising. And uh, it's been very interesting to me as I've, as I've gone through various traditions. I worked in the, the Theravadan tradition around... Um, School of Ajahn Chah, the Forest Sangha, also at Samuel Ling with the, the Tibetans there. Uh, obviously, psychotherapy, modern psychotherapy, has a sort of meditative component to it in some schools. Um, I'm now working with a Vajrayana teacher in America called Reggie Ray, who's very sim- interested in somatic practices. So I've sort of um, moved through various, um, a little shamanic window as well, various uh, practices over the years. And I've always been very interested in the sort of um, the haziness around this term meditation, which is so central to so many spiritual traditions uh, and is often used in a very widespread way. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar or may have been your first experience of meditation may have been through mindfulness, which is tremendously important and uh, widespread at the moment. Um, but if you ask lots of people what meditation is, you get a very hazy answer. And even people who have been practicing quite a long time may have quite a hazy answer. So I thought it would be an interesting subject to, to bring here to Cardiff to, to discuss. And, and I'd like to start by saying this is absolutely just my take on it. It's not uh, absolute. But I thought it might be quite interesting for me to say a few things and then to open it up to the room about uh, whether medita- what meditation might be in the context of a, a life well lived. but also whether the practice of meditation, sort of something along the lines or akin to what we've just been doing, is enough to make a life well lived. Whether it's the, you know, you can just meditate and that's, that's enough, or whether there are other components and if so, what they might be. Um, <clears throat> so when we ask the question, is meditation enough? As I mentioned, it sort of propels us forward to, well, enough for what? And I've used the phrase a life well lived because that um, doesn't get us tangled up in too many spiritual kind of paradigms or kind of religious kind of entanglements. And, and for the purposes of this talk, I'm going to be using three focal points of what a life well lived might be. And this is obviously very strongly influenced by my uh, background as a Buddhist practitioner, 
uh, and a meditation teacher and also as a psychotherapist. And the three kind of areas, and I've been very heavily influenced, well, by lots of people actually, but uh, recently I've been working with a, another teacher called Locke Kelly. Has anyone heard of Locke Kelly here? He's actually an American, but I found out weirdly that he was teaching in the town 10 minutes from where I live in Sussex last year, but I, I missed him. And anyway, he's part of a sort of, I think he's Tibetan Buddhist, but he's sort of in the more kind of Advaita, sort of Hindu, sort of that sort of ballpark. But a, a modern wisdom teacher, we could call him. And he summarizes the, the, this path, or the, the, the aspects of the path to, you know, a, a life well lived, in these three phrases. Wake up, wake in, and wake out. Which I thought was a rather nice sort of shorthand for remembering it <clears throat> and we'll, uh, we'll sort of rotate around these three concepts throughout the talk so don't worry if you're a bit lost but the first step in his model is to wake up to the fact that there's more than just our thoughts to wake up to the reality that the sort of things that preoccupy us at the front of our everyday life i.e. our what in the terminology is called our ego our egoic thoughts this is not the whole picture. So we need to wake up from the sort of uh, the trance of, of that particular way of being in the world into something bigger. And this is, this is common to almost all spiritual traditions, this idea that we're somehow living in a, in a small box and we need to step out or wake up. And of course, you know that the, the entomology of the word Buddhist comes from Buddha, which means to, to awaken. Buddha. And the wake-in is, is slightly interesting because obviously we know the word wake-up. Wake-in is a made-up word. But uh, by this he means that once we've woken up, we actually then need to use that space of awakening to come back into our bodies. That uh, we need to be embodied. We wake into our particular thumbprint. This is our life. You know, we're not an abstract, disembodied kind of entity. You know, we, we've been born into this body from our parents. We've been born into this particular time and this particular uh, set of karmic, to use the Buddhist terminology, this sort of particular interweaving of, of um, event streams. And this particular um, uh, footprint is, is really important. So we need to wake into that. So you know, we wake up and then we wake in and then we wake out. So once we're embodied into our body from this place of kind of a big perspective, then we need to connect. And the way I think about these three terms is that the qualities perhaps of a, of a good life is that it's free, free from this constriction, that it's alive, that you're really alive in your body, that you're really fully uh, enjoying, if you like, the, the uniqueness of this, this human birth and that it's connected, that we do not self-isolate into a kind of little bubble of our thoughts, that we connect with other people, with our hearts, with our actions, what we do. And that these, these three qualities of being um, free, alive, and connected, for me, constitute, if you like, the kind of para parameters of you know, where I'm aiming with my practice, with my kind of spiritual endeavors. And, and these, three, these three areas, freedom, waking up, um, 
aliveness waking in to our bodies and connection waking out. Uh, these are, I think, good um, arenas to think about where meditation may fit and where it may not fit. Uh, there's a wonderful um, uh, Buddhist psychologist called John Wellwood. Come across John Wellwood. So he was a student of Chogyun Trumpa, who was the sole brother of uh, Akon Rinpoche. He was the sort of guiding spirit of this center. Um, and Trumpa was a very, uh, very prominent and brilliant uh, Buddhist thinker in America in the sort of 70s and 80s. And he's also the teacher of my teacher, Reggie Ray. He was also a teacher of uh, John Wellwood. And John Wellwood is famous, really, in, in spiritual circles for coming up with the term spiritual bypassing, which we will uh, return to in a bit. But it's interesting that John Wellwood has this concept, which sort of maps slightly onto what I was just saying, of um, our practice, when we think about, you know, we've decided, I'm assuming that most of you who come here you're, you've sort of thought about life and you've thought about you know, why it might be going wrong or why it might be, not be living up to your potential and you've sort of engaged with the, what they call the path. So you've stepped onto the path and you've thought about it. So he says once you're on the path, it's important to be aware of three dimensions. And the three dimensions he talks about are the suprapersonal, not the superpersonal, the suprapersonal, so above the self, which we could uh, align with that idea of waking up from our narrow perspective. And then the personal, which is the waking in. And then the interpersonal, which is the kind of connecting with other people. And he, he makes this very good distinction, is that meditation is great for the first one, suprapersonal. But for the personal, he recommends therapy. So working with another to explore and with the technologies of Western therapeutic thinking. So obviously meditation is mostly flavoured from the East, from Tibet, from China, from Japan, from India. But there also is this you know, at least 100-year-old uh, lineage, if you like, of, of therapeutic thinking, psychotherapy thinking that goes back to Freud and Janet and people like that. And then the third part, the waking out, is what he calls conscious relationships, or conscious <coughs> relating. <coughs> and this is um, an area of enormous growth, uh, but sadly not hugely represented in most people's thinking. You know, most people have heard of, maybe are seeing a therapist, or know people who have been to see a therapist. And I'm assuming that a lot of you have engaged with meditation. But I'm particularly interested by this, this notion of conscious relating, <coughs> which is bringing a sort of awareness and a, a level of consciousness to the way that we are with other people. Because I think this is a particularly rich field for uh, the path, for getting to this state of aliveness, freedom, and uh, connectedness. And... In my experience, and of course my experience is quite limited, but you know, talking to my teacher Reggie and other people that I've met along the path, this area, the relational area, can be um, can be lacking in spiritual communities. Sometimes you know, there's a lot of kind of unworked through spiritual dynamics, 
and certainly in certain spiritual practitioners, practitioners, and I can, I definitely put myself into that number. It has been lacking in my practice, because of course, uh, what we what we typically think of as meditation uh, stems out of largely a celibate, often male, monastic Eastern tradition. So the models were very much influenced by a non-relational uh, model. Celibacy, often meditating on your own up in a mountain for many years. These were kind of held up as the sort of templates of practice. <clears throat> and of course, if you're interested in being in the world, that can, not always, but it can be sadly lacking. And I'm sure we all know people who are very spiritual, but unbearable to be around. <laughs> and I, uh, I definitely was a bit like that. I went through this whole phase when I first you know, came to meditation, very passionate about it, very devoted. And uh, in this particular Theravadan school of practice, which is quite austere. And um, yeah, a friend of mine, after about four years of practice, he just came to me and said, you've got to stop because you are insufferable. <laughs> You're insufferable. And, and I realised, you know, I was uh, totally offended at the time, but I realised that, that, of course, he was right, because I had completely used meditation to shore up the, the very things that had made me unhappy in the first place. So I thought it might be useful to, rather than just be very abstract, to give you a few examples from my life, through a few little vignettes of my uh, path, which include um, actually include my meditation path, but also my shamanic experiences, and also my therapy, a little bit, and also my relational experience. Um, so I'd like to spin back the clock, if you will, to 2000. I am a very new, uh, wet behind the ears meditator. Um, I have been working in the TV industry and doing partying too much, taking too, taking too many drugs, drinking too much, and I've said enough. So I, I go clean, and I decide, okay, I've got nothing to do now, so what shall I do? So I decide to I start doing yoga, and then I buy a cassette from W.H. Smith saying how to meditate. And this is my first exposure to meditation. It's a woman called Dr. Patricia Carrington, PhD, uh, and I've never ever heard of her again. But I'm very grateful to her because on that small cassette, she introduced me to the very basic concepts of mantra meditation, of using a mantra just to still the mind. And I really loved it. It was, it was a real hit for me. From the very first time I did it, I was like, I can get this. And so religiously, I did it every day for two months. Very devoted. And then I thought, right, I'm going to go on a retreat. And so I booked a retreat up on Holy Island, which I thought was Lindisfarne on the east coast of England, but turned out to be Holy Island on the west coast of Scotland. And eventually I got there. I don't know if it, who's been to Holy Island. Has anyone been to Holy Island? Yeah. It's a stunning place. So Holy Island, at that time, there was no, the, the, the centre wasn't there. It was just the old farmhouse, and you had to sleep in tents. It was run by a very raggle-taggle bunch of builder monks from Samuel Ling. Um, and I did... a. Uh, uh, tai Chi course, actually. It was a Tai Chi, tai chi course with um, Rinchen Kandro, who's now the head of the, the Edinburgh Centre. Wonderful. Mancunian nun. And, uh, <coughs> yeah, so I was, I was loving it. I was like, this is 
great. I'm really enjoying it. It's amazing. We were meditating in a yurt. It's so authentic. And, and I was thinking, right, I'm really getting this. It's really good. <laughs> and at that time, the, the Holy Island has like a center at the, the north end and then a center at the south end, which is now a retreat center, but then was um, uh, being prepared as a retreat center. But it was also being used as the shrine room then. So, so once or twice in the retreat, we all trekked down to the, to the south end and, and we did um, a puja. And you know, I've never done a puja. So I was I already had strong ideas about what you know practice was and you know <clears throat> and it was a real, real raggle taggle bunch of monks, some really kind of kooky. Uh, and you know, it, I don't know if you've, if you've experienced a I'm sure some of you have Tibetan puja, but they're quite long. This was Guru Rinpoche Sok Puja, so it's quite long, a lot of chanting, a lot of the monks getting lost and forgetting where they were and like having to compare notes and like it all sounded a bit flat and tuneless and and I was extremely irritated by it. I thought there's this oh god, they can't sing properly, it's really annoying. And it's like I'm hungry and how long is this gonna go on? And there's chocolate at the end, I'm gonna have to wait and and I had a terrible crush, a wonderful crush, on um, Zangpo, who was one of the, the monks there. And I was like totally in love with him. So, it was all, so I was like all swoony about him and all this stuff going on. I was just tied in this really frustrated knot. And then suddenly, boom! In the middle of Sok Puja, it was like, boom! All my anxiety dropped away. All my worries dropped away. And I was enlightened. <laughs> it was like... I love all these people. I love, I love myself for loving the girls. Everything looked kind of crystal clear, and the books and the, the candles. It was like, it's got done it. Like, two months. That is record time. Two months. Boom. There we are. And I felt amazing for about twenty minutes. And then as we started to walk back towards the north end and slowly kind of like you know, started to close in again and by the time we got to the north end I was incredibly irritated and judgy about everyone for spoiling my enlightenment. <laughs> um, but I, th- I, do, I genuinely do think that that was a very a moment of grace. It was a moment of what the, the Zen people called Satori where you just get a little glimpse of how almost comically easy and joyful it can be before the kind of like the mist sets in again. But what was, what was very striking to me was that to notice how I then you I picked up that event and it was like, I'm really special. I've had this experience and you haven't had this experience. And, uh, and it just became completely, it was like, I'm sure there's something in Game of Thrones where like a tree, or maybe it's in The Hobbit, where a tree like swallows someone up alive. You know, where, I, you know, it kind of, it get, there's a thing and it gets encased in a tree. And it was like that, that my ego, my all my kind of, all the stuff that I'd been trying to get away with, away from, just kind of just ate up that experience. And it became kind of coated in that experience. So this was, this was a, a, you know, a moment of waking up but then a very strong, uh, you know, it took years and years till I had an experience like that again, the strong experience of, of the closing down, of the kind of shutting down, or the, you know, as Chukyun Trumpa often said, the ego is capable of taking any spiritual experience and making it part of the ego. And we'll talk about this when I come to spiritual materialism. 
So, you know, I had this wonderful experience, but then it became part of my kind of familiar and quite dreary self-project. Spin forward the clock. Uh, how many years? About five years. And the very friend who told me I was insufferable invited me to go to Brazil to drink ayahuasca. So ayahuasca, you probably know ayahuasca is an extremely potent psychotropic drug that the Indians of the Amazon drink to give themselves visions. And it's a very, uh, it's the sort of up there with the kind of holy trinity of, of psychedelics. And it's uh, an extremely powerful and very sacred experience. Nonetheless, you know, I was still me. And so I'm in the plane and I get off the plane and I go to this place in the middle of the jungle with all these insufferable hippies. <laughs> and, <laughs> and in the dark, and it's like dark and scary and I'm taking something you know at that time I was a total good Buddhist and wasn't even drinking caffeinated tea and then suddenly I was drinking the most potent hallucinogen known to man but what that did was it completely dissolved the tree all of that incrustation fell to the ground and I, I did it many times I went back for many years um, <clears throat> but in the middle of that experience, very interestingly, was an experience of complete terror. Utter, gut-clenching, awful terror. And I got in touch with a part of me that had been completely uh, sealed off uh, when I disappeared into my head. So it was experience, and I felt it in my body. And it was a memory of my, uh, well, it was many memories, actually, over the, the place of times that I did it. But it, this particular one was a memory <coughs> about being left in my cot, being left as a baby, unattended, while my mother was very grief-stricken. She'd lost her, pe her parents. And just being left, and that sense of rage and horror being left. And I felt that so vividly uh, during this experience and I, I had a very strong, and then I also had a very beautiful experience as well of, 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 of loving that, of coming into contact with that. But I realised that there was this enormous kind of tranche of my experience in my body that I had just cut off, I'd kind of just gone up into my head. And so that, that shamanic experience, although I don't, you know, don't do it anymore, it really opened the door to a, an incredibly rich sense of enjoyment or of the wisdom of the body of the body having an enormous um, complexity and it was like the kind of the, the memory banks of the body were full of all this very unique data. I could remember I could remember being born. I could even remember things happening to my father. So you could always go back through the ovum into you know the you know, generations before. It was an extraordinary experience. <coughs> and it really again just broke open uh, how, or maybe so aware of how I had used meditation up until that point to just completely shut down my body. This particular kind of Theravadan Buddhism, which I have huge respect for, is beautiful, but I had used it to shut down and, and sort of seal off the experiences of my body in a very kind of Puritan way. And so that was a, that was a great release for me, and then that led to another 10 years of, of practice trying to integrate those things. And during that time, I then trained as a psychotherapist, and I had very wonderful experiences of uh, experiencing one-to-one, 
you know, now moving into the, from the waking up to the waking in to the waking out. You know, my lovely therapist Ruthie, who I uh, owe so much to. You know, I spent about five years with her, and there were so many occasions where just sitting in that room with another person holding you with love was so so difficult for me because I think along with lots of people I think love is not a simple thing being loved and loving can evoke all sorts of defenses in the, in the ego and so that was a huge um, was a huge learning curve as well but the, the incident I want to talk to you about is with my current partner my husband to be <coughs> Daniel uh, and early on in our relationship we went to a dinner party and uh, had a nice time and I was being very witty and charming and like, everyone was laughing <laughs> and then we came out and, and he sat in the car and he went do you think I'm stupid? I was like no, no he says but you do actually speak to me as if I'm stupid in public and I was so horrified because this is a person I loved and I felt very strongly about because I knew he was right I knew that Part of the kind of personal habit I have growing out of the way that my family relates to each other is to constantly tease and make fun of and make little jibes at people, particularly people who are in the circle, in front of other people. And it's completely, it was completely unknown to me. It was, like it, was, it was hidden from view. But it took him very bravely, I thought, to actually just to say it for the pane of glass to smash and for me to see that. <clears throat> and so I thought these are, these are um, I could have chosen hundreds of examples, but these are kind of good examples of, of, of where a path really is more than just meditation. Um, that this obviously meditation is very important about the waking up part, about seeing through the, the, uh, the, the patterns. Um, but particularly the, the dealing with your body, dealing with the incarnated self, and also dealing with the interpersonal, I think you struggle to do that um, just simply sitting in meditation, unless you, unless you make real efforts to, to be careful not to get stuck in those paths. And I just wanted to, to end with a <clears throat> thinking about some of those tendencies uh, and what... You know, from a, certainly from a Buddhist point of view, what some of the things we can do to correct them might be. So just going back to the um, waking up, waking in, waking out. <clears throat> and actually going back to John Wellwood, because he, a little twist, he talks about some of the, um, some of the issues that arise from our, our practice and some of the solutions. And he ties them to the three Buddhist categories of what they call the the core mind poisons or the core problem solvers, problem starters, which are <coughs> grasping, aversion, and they call it ignorance, but we could call it dissociation as well. So grasping, aversion, and dissociation. And grasping, and certainly as, as one as Wellwood uh, describes it, grasping is that part of us that wants to hold on to the good things, the good things in our lives, the things that make us feel good, and particularly the things that make us validate us, validate our ego. Yes, I am. 
I am a clever boy. Or yes, I am a good boy. I am, a, I am handsome. I am this or I am not that. And sometimes they can be negative things. You know, I'm a failure. I'm, I'm a depressive. You know, we can label ourselves. And so there's a sort of grasping after, you know, confirming our kind of tree trunk, confirming what, what we are. <clears throat> and that, that grasping, that kind of almost like solidifying ourselves is what uh, Shogyan Trumpa calls spiritual materialism. So we use meditation, we use any kind of spirituality to kind of reinforce our ego, to make us feel good about, I'm, I'm really good, look how good I am at meditating, I'm really good. Well, you know, I'm enlightened and you're not enlightened. These, these sort of things, they can be very subtle, sometimes, unfortunately, they can be very gross. But that sense of kind of grasping after things to make us feel better um, is, is what he means by spiritual materialism. <coughs> And then there's the uh, aversion part, which is where we're kind of pushing away all the kind of facts of our life that disturb that sense of self. The things that we don't like, the things that challenge us. You know, somebody saying, you know, you know, you're really rude to me at the dinner table. And that sort of, you know, we want to push that away, that aversion of anything that kind of disrupts our smooth self-snugness, as Trumpa calls it. And, and Wellwood calls that spiritual bypassing. This is when we, we kind of fly up to the heavens, we kind of we transcend our muddy personal things and we're, we're up there with you know, the pure essence. We don't, we don't want to dirty ourselves by thinking about you know, our childhood or you know, our psychic wounds or you know, anything kind of mucky and uh, you know, we spiritually bypass that. The problem, of course, with that is that everybody else has to deal with it. You know, you're, you know, you're maybe up in the Tushita heavens, sorry, your husband or your wife, they have to kind of put up with your terrible kind of you know, passive aggression and unsolved you know, problems. And then the, the last one, which is dissociation, which is an area that I'm very interested in, um, which is it's more the sense of, of just tuning out so it's not even pushing away or grasping onto it. It's just not seeing. It's just being unaware of these very obvious facts. A bit like when Daniel told me, you know, you know you're really rude to me in public. And I was like, <gasps> it was like this moment of suddenly seeing something that I've been doing for a long time. And in, and in some traditions, this, uh, this not seeing, this avidya, is seen as the mother of all problems. <laughs> because if we saw clearly, then everything else would sort itself out. But that dissociation, that kind of like... And it's not even something we do deliberately. It's not like repression. It's not like we see it and then we just pretend we're not doing it. We literally don't see it. We literally don't see it. I had a... Uh, I was doing a dissertation project with a client who... <coughs> who um, was in an analysis with a, with a woman who... You know, well, problematic. Anyway. But he, she became incredibly pregnant... During the, during the analysis, which would mean, of course, that she would take leave. And he literally did not see her pregnancy. She came with this huge belly. And he, he said that the moment where she said, you know I'm pregnant, it was like he like almost had a seizure because he suddenly had to see this thing that he dared brushed out of, out of the, the picture. And so it's not, it's not even something that we consciously do. It's just it sort of happens. We, kind of, we just don't see what we don't want to see. And 
the the tonics to all these are interesting that when we when we spiritually bypass when we go off into the into the heavens and ignore the body then we need to earth we need to come back down into the earth and and Wellwood has this nice image of the of the human being standing up on two feet so their feet are on the earth the head is pointing to the sky and then there's the human connecting the two so the heavens the earth and the and the human and so the, for those of us who are, um, well, we are all, I suppose, but those of us who are um, uh, averse to being in our bodies, we need to earth, we need to come down. And for those of us who are grasping, you know, wanting to make, you know, make everything about us more solid and identify more and more, more um, uh, frantically, then we need to go up. We need to find space. So when he talks about heaven, he's not talking about, you know, heaven with an old man in it, but he's talking about the space, the spaciousness, which in, in Buddhism is the concept of emptiness. <clears throat> and then interestingly, for the, for the dissociative part, for the part that does not see, he recommends socialising. He recommends uh, interactions, relationships. And I think this is really uh, wonderful and fascinating, and certainly is borne out by all my therapy work, that... It's relationships that really teach us so much about those blind spots that we just cannot see on our own on the cushion. You know, we can sit and we can sit till we're blue at the gills, but we will not see these things until they are reflected back by others. And Wellwood says, you know, it's the greatest litmus test of our practice is how we relate to others, how we uh, are able to be in the presence of another and be genuine, and actually to see them. Um, <clears throat> and actually, there's a very nice example from my from my therapy room of a, a lovely client that I'm, I'm seeing at the moment. Um, and she she had a difficult childhood. She had a very sexually inappropriate father, and so she came very much looking at the personal, that sort of sense of of not wanting to deal with the, all of that terrible stuff that happened to her. And so a lot of the, the work we did there was about coming into her body and just acknowledging what it was that she was feeling. And then she had just started a new relationship with a lovely woman and, and that was, became the next stage, that the interpersonal became a way of her reflecting back these blind spots that her, you know, her childhood had thrown up. And then interesting, in the last few months, uh, the work has become quite suprapersonal in the sense that of being able to step back, be in her body, and just create some space and come back has allowed her to really kind of free up the whole thing, to see, to see her do these things with her partner, but also to have enough space to kind of forgive herself and actually even laugh about it. So um, I, don't want to, I don't want to in any way suggest that meditation is not enough. Um, because I think there are cases where when meditation is really about unhooking from the ego, unhooking from that whole process of grasping and, and pushing away and dissociating, then sometimes it can be enough. But for us, um, the immortals who live in a complicated 21st century world, I think uh, turning to the incredible wisdom of therapy and also particularly the growing wisdom of conscious relating 
is, is really essential for our path to, to have a heart and to open up our hearts in our meditation, we need to relate more fully. So that's all I have to say on the subject, but I'm sure you have interesting things to say. So um, I'm going to take a sip of water and you can gather your thoughts. Thank you for listening and please do join us again for more podcasts from MindSprings. You can find out more about us and our work at mind-springs.org. That's mind-springs.org.